Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games a bit like songs often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is an award-winning writer and narrative designer for video games. As a child, she split her time between Bangalore, London and Saudi Arabia before settling in the UK to study English literature. After a stint commissioning games for the BBC, she wrote the script for 2014's BAFTA-nominated narrative adventure game 80 Days, then contributed to the hit indie titles Sunless Seas and Boyfriend Dungeon, as well as the Sony blockbuster Horizon Zero Dawn. My guest has won two Writers Guild Awards for Best Writing in a Video Game, hosted the Independent Games Festival and become a sought-after speaker, known for her sharp critiques of game mechanics that, as she describes it, promote colonialist values. Her latest project, Thirsty Suitors, a stylish story-driven adventure that unfolds through turn-based battles, skateboarding and cooking is set for release later this week. 
Welcome, Meghna Giants. I'm so glad to be here, Simon. It's so nice to see you. How have you been? Really well, yeah. I've mostly wrapped up my role on Thirsty. I mean, the team is hard at work, obviously, bug fixing, but I'm a little bit You're all done. kind of on holiday. So there's plenty of time to be become increasingly anxious about the reception of the game. So that's delightful. <laughs> So we've met a couple of times before mm-hmm. on like various panels about narrative writing. I remember one where you appeared alongside, is it uh, Andrzej Sapkowski, <laughs> the author of the Witcher novels? Yes, I remember that quite clearly. <laughs> yeah, he spent most of the time talking about how he doesn't play video games, but is very pleased to um, financially benefit from them, I think. Um, you know, I mean, it's a paycheck. Yeah, it is. So at that time, uh, I knew you as Meg. But when we were talking before, you said that you've gone back to, I guess, your your birth name. What made you What made you make that decision recently? I actually in, tried to go by Meghna when I started in the world of work, but I hadn't quite. I, I think I wasn't quite confident enough to keep insisting in the face of people's mispronunciation. Right, and then so people would call me just these horrifying kind of Franken words that resembled nothing like Meghna. Um, and then, you know, I, I really, I think, you know, decolonial praxis, which is really what I've been doing in the in the kind of latter half of my career, um, made me realize that, you know, insisting upon your own name is kind of a right <laughs> and it isn't rude. It's fair and, enough. <laughs> yeah. And so I was kind of able to hold it. I think it's the, that feeling of, of other people's embarrassment, you know, mm. um, and, and I was kind of able to go, no, it's this is a reasonable request. Um, so yeah, I've been I've been going by Meghna <laughs> these days, especially professionally. So yeah, how's it going? Do you find that people make the effort? Oh yes, I do think so. I mean, I think I think the hardest thing is that often people get incredibly embarrassed by the fact that they haven't said your name correctly, and then you end up having to do some emotional labor to right, like yeah. reassure it's fine them. it's fine i don't hate you <laughs> exactly you know but you know you i think it's 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 mostly been i think really really wonderful and there's something that feels i i don't know i think megna feels much more like uh the person that i am now rather than the child that i was and there's something that feels much more grown up and powerful about it so nice is that what you were called when you were a kid then by your family no it was meg because i grew up in you know i spent my childhood here in the uk and it was just meg or megs was what my parents called me right right you know so it was it was a kind of nickname from an era before i even realized that shortening an indian name or a foreign name to make it English, anglicize it, um, is a kind of political <laughs> choice, you know, because I didn't really make that choice as a four-year-old. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, uh, but yeah, no, there, there's still a, an entire, a whole bunch of like really old friends that, that still call me, like, many of whom are Indian, <laughs> right? Um, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something about nicknames, isn't there, that people can sometimes employ them like as a way of either showing a special relationship but also like yeah. maybe asserting a little bit of ownership or something it's quite like the dynamics of nicknames are quite interesting aren't so they, I, I have i have a friend who has this um really tight-knit childhood friend group and they never refer to each other by their names at all which is very confusing when you're introduced to like all eight of them at once but, you know, they've got like a, a, a kind of a, a hierarchy of nicknames that they call each other, depending on <laughs> how much of a dickhead they're being at any given time. And each of those nicknames has like a wonderful, embarrassing story behind it. Um, right. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. Is, which is very delightful. <laughs> Do you have any nicknames, Simon? Um, yeah. So some people call me uh, Parco. 
which is a nickname that was, yeah, I think your friend Lee was involved in giving me that back in the day, but uh, (laughs) it's kind of, it's kind of stuck. So yeah. (laughs) Well, anyway, we should, we should turn to like some video game chats. (laughs) As I, as I mentioned, I mean, this is relevant. So as I mentioned in the intro, Mm -hmm. you've been in recent years, like, you know, you've given some really, really, I think important and meaningful talks about game mechanics and okay. colonialist values and how they come through. This is like a very deep and complex topic. And obviously the talks you give are long and very in-depth. But like, I guess, how might you explain what you mean here to like someone who perhaps only casually plays FIFA or Call of Duty a couple of times a year? Yeah, I think what I'd say is games are sort of deeply steeped. I guess I have this idea of the white player, which might be helpful to kind of talk about here. And the white player isn't necessarily even white. It's this kind of almost semi-magical creation. It's a fantasy, really. And there are certain, I describe, injunctions of the white player. So like the white player always carries a gun. The white player saves the world. You know, the white player gains in power. I think it's more about thinking about the the broad mainstream structure of video games. And, and I think even anyone who even plays a few video games a year realizes that um, it's often really similar stories told over and over again. Right. And the gun is our main, is the main mechanic through which we interact with the world. Yep. And that's a really narrow vision of interactivity um, and of power. You know, we often talk about games as power fantasies, but I think it's really helpful to think about whose power fantasies and how much we're kind of limiting this incredible sort of artistic landscape of possibility. You know, games are such a, a kind of new medium um, and we've barely scratched the surface of the kinds of stories we can tell and the emotions we can evoke and I think we're bringing along you know a lot of baggage about what a good game is or what game design is or what protagonism is and I do think I also have a really kind of materialist focus here in that I think it's really important to think about the fact that a lot of the technologies that are used to build games were developed, you know, by DARPA and the American military industrial complex. A lot of, you know, like Call of Duty, a lot of big war games out there are also, you know, they do have links to the American military industrial complex. You know, developers are like flown out to weapons manufacturers and in in the pursuit of like authenticity and how it feels to fire a certain weapon. Games can kind of almost turn into little advertisements for, you know, guns and, and, and weaponry. You know, and I, and, and I, I think all of that stuff is sort of so deeply normalized that we don't really think about mm, it. So yeah. um, I think the task of, of the talks that I've been giving is to make those a little strange and go, actually, no, this isn't normal. This isn't all that games can be or have to be. But these are tendencies that we have to pull against because the fundamental nature of the game, maybe, of the video game as we conceive it in our circumstances of labor and everything like that pulls towards becoming capitalist, colonialist um, fantasies of of American power, which might perhaps be a slightly too detailed explanation. No, that's brilliant. Yeah. And I suppose as well, it's it's a matter of emphasis sometimes as well, because it's not that some people might be listening to this and think, oh, you're trying to take away like a gun game which I think is harmless maybe and I enjoy mm-hmm. but it's not that it's just the fact that I suppose so much effort of finessing goes into this tiny little trying to make a gun feel really good when you yeah. shoot it and like all of this money from all of these companies it's like maybe you could divert some of that resource into exploring some other methods of 
interaction perhaps yeah and i think especially now right i mean we see the financial financialization of games happening right i mean so recently we've had like massive layoffs at places like epic that make Fortnite, for heaven's sake you know these are not places that are struggling for money and also kind of increasing platformization and you know lots of mergers and games are becoming increasingly kind of lucrative but that also means that as more capital floods into this space capital is really risk averse and so there's this tendency towards let's let's play it safe and let's do what we've always done. But unfortunately, what we've always done are stories of white men, largely brown head white men, who are feeling emotions and can only express them through the catharsis of violence at the end of the gun, which is a story. And it's not to say that it's not worth telling, but perhaps it's not the only story <laughs> worth telling. On that note, I mean, we should, yeah, like to, to put a positive spin on this, I guess you said you know, I've read I've read quite a few interviews with you preparing for this, and you said that mm-hmm. your your own personal aims and ambitions with your creative work are often sort of at odds with those of the industry gatekeepers, who I guess we're referring to mm. right now. You know, what what sort of stories are you eager to tell through games that right now you 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 think are quite difficult to find a place in the medium? You know, I think in some ways I would say I've been I've been really lucky in my career and uh, I've gotten to work on lots of games that I feel, you know, deeply align with my values. I mean, so the game that I've just been working on, Thirsty Suitors, is this incredibly brown and black and queer, joyful exploration of like immigrant culture and family dynamics. And it, I think, plays out some of the you know, some of the critical sort of slightly academic work I've been doing, right? So the the stakes in this game are, are, you know, are you going to be able to make up with your mom and dad as opposed to can you save the world? But I think that's actually, you know, deeply relatable. And I have to say my experience of talking to normal people, well, non-gamers, shall we say, in the world and telling them about this game has just been so delightful because, you know, they they get the human story, you know, whereas it's quite a lot harder to explain the 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 story of Halo. Like once you get to Space Wizards, right. like a lot of people who aren't into games are like completely checked out. Whereas, you know, when I tell people, right, the, the final boss in Thirsty Suitors is your maternal grandmother. And the fu- the fundamental fantasy is that you get to tell your parents how you feel and they listen to you and change and grow. You know, what a power fantasy that is, right? You know, so so I think that that's really exciting. And it's really exciting to kind of make space for in the in the most basic fashion be represented right i mean i have i have a real critique of this idea of diversity and representation and i do think they can be really co-opted by corporations and and made into this tick box exercise but on the other hand you know i think there is something weirdly radical about asking everyone to step into the shoes of like a queer brown woman because actually, I think it's really fun. I'm a queer brown woman, and I actually think it's kind of fun to meet me, um, <laughs> you know, rather than, and it's, it's not like take your medicine. It's not like, oh, you'll learn something here. I'm going to leave. You know, no, it's actually just, it's really fun to be other than who you are. It's one of the joys of, you know, role play. Right. Mm. And and I think, you know, that that is um, a fantasy that, that I think lots of us who work in games really understand, right? Like it was, we all possibly have that game that took us into another world um, when we perhaps felt a little bit like misfits in the real world or something was going on in our lives and we wanted to escape or we wanted to be seen or we wanted to be known. And for a game to be able to do that, I think, 
You know, that's so that, yeah, that's one answer. Yeah, I love that. I love the idea of like making the stakes domestic scale or f- okay. f- familial scale rather than like you say like so often every every video game has to be independence day and like writers are they're trying to like inject some human story but at the end of the day it's got to turn into independence day or like yeah. saving private ryan in the last sort of moments right so yeah being able to reduce the scope is super interesting so on that uh, did you ever actually have a face-off with your your grandmother in real life <laughs> and both of my grandmothers are still alive okay. so um i mean i think i think of course i mean my my both of my grandmothers are actually very you know complicated very interesting fascinating difficult women which i think is you know very true of lots of them then neither of them are perfect they're you know, and I have a, I guess it's a complicated relationship that I have with them and that my parents have with them. And I wouldn't, I would be lying if I said that there's, there's not some part of that in, in Thirsty Suitors, though I wouldn't say it's completely autobiographical. You know, we're really pulling from, you know, loads of members of the team are kind of first or second generation immigrants. And so we've amalgamated lots of stories, mostly because all of us want to be able to, you know, ever go home to see our parents again (laughs) (laughs) and not be buried in the back garden. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh great right we better come to the premise of the podcast mm. so i've asked you to pick the five video games you'd like to put on your ideal perfect video game console you've picked five really interesting games i'm very excited to talk about these so yeah why don't you tell us about your first one uh which is from 1997 what's the game and why do you love it yeah so this first game is called theme park first one of the entire theme series i think the second one is theme hospital which i'm also sneakily going to talk about yeah in this game you're managing you know a theme park and you're building rides and you know little stalls and the idea and the premise is that you want to attract people to come to your park it's it's also quite very capitalist and it's about running a business I think it's it's Peter Molyneux, isn't it? Is, it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. It really? <laughs> Previous guest of the podcast. <laughs> oh my goodness, okay. He's currently making some kind of Web3 business simulator, isn't he? That's coming I don't out know if he, I don't know if that bit has been excised or not. It's, <laughs> well, I guess we'll see. But, uh, exactly. but yeah, like, like you yeah. say, it's all about running a successful, well, a successful theme park or hospital, isn't it? One of those. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you can kind of institution in some ways. And, and they, these are all, you know, even though they're, they're kind of business simulators, they all have this very, like, joyful silliness to them. So in the in theme hospital, uh, there's all of these, like, uh, list fictional ailments. Like, you have, like, bloat head, which causes patients to, like, have enormous bloating heads that then explode. There's something that causes people to turn into aliens. In the theme, in theme park, you can, depending on sort of how you build your roller coasters, you can also, like, completely just allow people to to kind of dive off the end and be horribly murdered in your theme park there's also like some idea of of sort of unfair business practices and things where actually you know if you increase the salt content in your snacks people have to buy more like drinks and it's actually the concession stands that really fund your park which is you know an interesting and depressing possible truth 
but these these games were was sort of super being a hospital especially was was really interesting to me because my parents are both doctors uh, okay right and so there would be times you know so uh, i think so you said this came out in sort of 97 or so this so theme parked it yeah i'm not sure theme parked yeah. it in theme hospital so i actually wrote a little timeline of where i was because i kind of make up dates for when i was where right yeah, yeah. and my historian friend hates that so I probably would have started playing these games in Bangalore. So sorry to say, but these were probably bought illegally and were like, you know, knockoffs. There was this little uh, market off Commercial Street, which is one of the main shopping streets in central Bangalore. And there was this guy who just would, you know, basically have like a bag full of CDs of, of things that were ripped. Yeah. Uh, and it really was, that was really that early gaming experience. Of, I mean, I think, so I had a Nintendo, an N64 before then. But once I was in Bangalore, there's no consoles. There's no way to legally buy games in any fashion. So you're really at the mercy of whatever they thought they could sell. So it's such an interesting, random kind of selection of things. So I also played this game called Imperialization, Bonus. which is a bit like Civilization. And it is a real game. You know, I had to, oh, I is. did look it up and I was like, I didn't just make it up. But it's, it's particularly around, about colonies and trade from the colonies, uh, but kind of gave me that a love of that type of game. And then I became obsessed with sort of civilization later in life. But right, right. these theme games, so I think I must have picked up Theme Park in Bangalore and then got so obsessed with it that we went back and, you know, just picked up every other theme game that there was. At some point went to... You know, I think I moved to Saudi a year after that and I was living in Riyadh and, you know, it's quite an isolating sort of place. You have to live on, you live on a hospital compound, you know, and, and you're often, I think, a little bit more on your own. It's not, you can't, you can't really go anywhere without a male guardian, in, in which case that was my, my father, but, you know, my father was at work. And so, you know, when he was at work, you were kind of stuck at home. Um, and so there would be all of these these kind of evenings where he was on shift and, and my mom was on shift and I would be at home playing theme hospital, curing fictional ailments, no way. running a hospital while they were in the hospital. <laughs> you were like, I could do this better than you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, and then I think at that age, you know, I mean, I was probably around, you know, 10 or, or 11 by then. But as a child, I, I actually really thought that what you did when you grow up was become a doctor because one of the things about doctors is they usually hang out with other doctors. Right. Um, and so all of the adults I knew in life, apart from my, my teachers, yeah. were doctors. So, you know, <laughs> made perfect sense. Yeah, right. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, how come, how come they were moving around so much to different hospitals in different countries? Initially, they moved around a lot because they were qualifying. And when you're qualifying, they're both surgeons. Um, you have to do kind of year-long stints at different places. But then they're, they're just kind of wanderers, really. So, you know, we moved back to Bangalore, and I think they, they wanted to join a hospital that was starting there, and that didn't work out. You know, I think in a very classic Indian way, there was some kind of embezzlement, corruption, you know, it got into litigation, and there was like this court case that was going to take 20 years to solve. And so they they went to Saudi Arabia, which is, I think, a lot of... Um, a lot of Indian doctors, if you want to make some money and, and kind of work in a in healthcare system with, with a bunch of funding, you go to the Middle East or England or America. And I think they didn't, they'd just come from England and they didn't want to make that big move. They knew it was just going to be for a couple of years. So it was Riyadh. But on the other hand, that did mean that, you know, that I hit puberty 
in Riyadh and Saudi Arabia. Oh, which, right. you know, yeah. Like, Lots of restrictions on you. Yeah, a lot of segregation. And, you know, so technically you don't have to wear like a, a burqa, a baya, and veil until you're, you know, an, an adult, like around, you know, 16, 17. But I was quite tall for for my age. So, you know, I just kind of had to do that as well. I mean, it's a very, it's a very fascinating um, place in lots of ways, you know. So one of the things I loved about it was that the the weekend was Thursday and Friday because it's a Muslim country. And I never got over feeling really naughty sleeping in on a Thursday and Friday and then right. going to school on Saturday and Sunday kind of felt a bit like a holiday. And they also do this thing that is um, the day is structured very differently, sort of afternoon siesta because the day is so hot and everything opens until about three in the morning or four yeah. in the morning. So Right. Yeah, so it's a very like nighttime driven place. Yeah, right. That's a lot of experiences going into the young uh, Meghna. So, <laughs> um, I I read an interview where you described yourself as feeling like a foreigner in both homes. Like I guess, yeah, when you're young and you move around a lot, I'm sure anyone listening to this who had that experience will will relate. What do you think those feelings of like not really belonging have had on you long term? There's a there's a wonderful part to it, which is that very early on, I had a really kind of sociological sense of the world and culture in that it was really clear to me that what are social norms and what is acceptable and normal and desirable is mutable. You know, what everyone thinks, oh, this is just how you live. <laughs> yes, that's true in Bangalore. It's not true in Riyadh, nor is that true in Truro, you know. So you become very adaptable and you and and I do think it's shaped me as a narrative designer in, in, a, in a big way, right? Because a lot of my practice as a narrative designer is around understanding systems and structures and cultures and how people and individuals navigate those. And I think having a sense that all of those are like fundamentally made up and that we make them up um, also allows you to be like playful about reimagining them in the world of the game. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, uh, I think for me, one of the most exciting things about working in video games is that ability to radically reimagine the world, right? Like it's, I might yearn for the fall of capitalism. That's much harder to achieve in real life. However, to imagine it in a video game is very plausible. And I think, you know, very like compelling and exciting. And, and I think, you know, capitalist realism really gives all of us this idea that this is the only way the world can be. And it really isn't. Yes. So, you know, I think all of that, that that is like maybe the, the really great side of it. And also exposure to people from hugely different places. So as complicated a place as Riyadh is, I'm, you know, we made friends from like Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, all over the world. And, and you know, particularly all over the Middle East as well, who, who come from very different places and you know, and I think also that that perhaps an idea that all of the pleasures and comforts of society that you think of as a real place might all disappear like that. You know, like my my Syrian friends, for instance, right? right. Or my Egyptian friends. Knowing them made it much harder for me to be like, oh, well, that happens over there to those kinds of people. It could happen anywhere, right? And yeah. and that's a really that's been a really helpful, you know, I think important knowledge that carries me through to today. But on the other side, I think I do sometimes, you know, envy, say, my parents who, despite moving around a lot of, in, in all of the same ways I did, but their home is India in this really deep way. And they're really, they're deeply Indian and no one could ever really question that. And I feel deeply Indian as well, but I also feel quite British. Yeah. Whether I like it or not. It was more troubling to me previously, but 
now I think I've come to this place where I'm like, actually, in some ways, being both Indian and British is kind of the most Indian and the most British that you can be. Because like the British are deeply shaped by their, you know, British culture and character is deeply shaped by their, their colonialism yes. and their encounter with India and Africa and, you know, various other places, you know, and, and India has been deeply shaped by the British as well. So, yes. you know, and in some ways, like maybe I'm more Indian. <laughs> it's co- it's complicated, isn't it? That's for sure. Identity. Yeah. yeah. Right. That seems like a good point to come to your second game. So, yeah, why don't you, why don't you tell us about this one? What's the game? Why do you love it? So this is Princess Maker 3. I'm I'm so excited to talk about this game. So Princess Maker, it's a, it's a Japanese series. And yeah, I think there's about seven now. I think three was the first one that was translated into English um, and was available to play, though I have perhaps played some fan translations of the previous ones. In this game, you are, you as the protagonist, you're actually like the dad of this fairy who wants to be a human princess. And your job is to kind of raise her well and make her into the best type of princess that she can be. And you do that through uh, this very kind of social simulation thing where you're like, you know, picking what she learns every day. Like there's a calendar and every morning and every afternoon you get to like teach her things and send her off to a little job or like go on vacations and, and, and kind of things like that. But underneath that, there's this sort of deep systemic of simulation of her attributes and there are these sort of, there are kind of festivals that happen throughout the year and little events that happen throughout the year that act as little trials that she can pass or fail and they have various consequences. So for me, I think it was a really interesting example of very crunchy, very uh, statistical, mechanically driven underpinnings creating narrative outcomes, uh, uh. Uh, which is, which is I think, something that, that has probably shape my like design practices as well right and even more than say theme park it really lends itself to uh, a little bit more of like role play and imagination so you really do start thinking of yourself as this kind of as this girl which is quite interesting right because you're playing actually the 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 dad who's doing the the god game arrangement of stuff but you feel as though you're her. Right, right. Yeah, and they, they do some really, really, really interesting stuff behind the scenes with things like mood. Like, you know, she can end up being like sassy if if her pride is twice the amount as her morality. But if she's sassy, <laughs> then she doesn't want to do menial jobs like go be a waitress. Right, right. And so there's like a massive kind of penalty to that. Then you, you've really succeeded in making a princess. Oh my God, yeah, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And then there's just a whole bunch of branching endings and outcomes because the stated goal of the game is to make her this perfect princess that then marries the prince. But actually that's really one of, I think, 30 or 40 different endings. Oh, interesting. There's this, there's this kind of interesting tension between if you're the kind of player that's like, all right, I want to do what the game tells me, then you have to do so much work to like figure out how to make that happen. Or or you can kind of pick your own goal and say, actually, which I did, which was after I figured out that you could end up being like queen of the underworld, <laughs> you know. Uh, and I was like, all right, that sounds amazing. But that's also is 
it's hard to achieve, but quite often those endings you you discover through um, failing to get to your goal. But then you 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 know there's a kind of pleasure there, and you're like, actually, you know, the game is correct. This this girl really shouldn't be the princess of a country and marry this prince. He seems a bit wet. Right. She seems much more like the sort of person that should end up the prime minister or chancellor, or you can end up queen of the fairies. I think you can end up like a grave digger. You can end up like being a victorious general. And again, it, it kind of allows for a a type of play that's that's very goal oriented, mm-hmm. as well as a type of play that's very role playing and kind of responsive. Yeah. And I think I've always. I've always tended towards the the role playing, you know, the idea of like winning or losing. Or so, I mean, I think, you know, I say that it makes me sound like I'm being holier than thou here. Like, oh, I don't care about winning and losing. I think it's actually from a much more rebellious, slightly anarchist feeling uh, uh. of not desiring to conform to what the game tells me is the optimal route. I find that that obedience to the game's design. Um, very uncompelling as a player. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the fact that this series accommodates that rebelliousness in a yeah in a really interesting way. Because like in many games, it's like you do it as the designer says it, or or else it's game over and you've got to try again. But yeah, games that can that can roll with your choices as a player are always interesting. I reckon you've sold some copies of Princess Maker there. <laughs> I really hope so as well, right? And I think for me, it was a very seminal experience for me because it was such a girl game as well in an industry full of you know masculine fantasy this was this was like it was frills and bows and princess but it was a deeply like crunchy mechanical quite punishing experience and you know and i think you can also see see that so if you want a modern version of princess maker um that's maybe a little bit more accessible there's hanako games georgina bensley makes long live the queen which is a it's a really tightened version of this. And it's, it's very punishing. You know, you can die very easily if you kind of get things wrong. And I, I quite like the that combination of this, like the very sort of princessy pink and frills aesthetic and this very mechanically driven, statistically driven right, right. sort of underpinning. Yeah, yeah. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Yeah.
Right. Let's uh, let's come back to your story, Magna. So you were, you know, talking about being, you know, feeling very Indian and feeling oh. very British. You, I mean, you did you study English literature at Oxford University, which for much of the twentieth century is sort of the the quintessential dream of many many people who are who are English. You said when we were talking about this over over email that you cringe yourself to death any time <laughs> it comes up. <laughs> Yeah. Um, what's that about? Um, you know, I think the the decision and the drive to do English Lit at Oxford for me came from this really internalised colonial place. You know, I think I really wanted a big check mark from the heart of empire. You know, and, and in, in some ways, like, Oxford is, is the crucible of empire, like, where they trained young men, largely, in the ways of Britishness to go off and conquer the rest of the world, Right. I have to say, I had a I had a really wonderful time at Oxford. I made a lot of really good friends, and it really suited the intellectual kind of rigor of the place really suited me. But it's really it's it, it can be really punishing, and and I, I certainly wouldn't wouldn't recommend it wholeheartedly. And there's certainly whole a huge amount of sort of elitism there. And I think having been there, you really do see that your contemporaries and your classmates end up in positions of power um so you know it's like a it's really part of the entrenched class system of britain you know they're 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 in you know writing the news they're making television they're making laws they're you know they're anything that shapes really british society and culture there's oxbridge folks doing so and i think one of the pleasures of like video games and working in video games is that really i don't meet a lot of Oxbridge people here <laughs> and it's not really and it's not really relevant or important to getting a job or opening doors um in the games industry much to its benefit I think. <laughs> when you were when you were at Oxford you were was it is it president the term or whatever the term is of the Oxford Review I directed director um, the Oxford okay, yeah, yeah so so were you were, were you a stage kid yeah. How, how can you tell? How can you tell? Yeah, but much more, you know, behind the scenes. So I, I directed plays at university. I actually directed, much more interestingly, I think, I directed a Pratchett play while I was at oh, uni. I directed Weird Sisters. Brilliant. And that set off a little, you know, for about 10 or 15 years afterwards. Like there were people who I had cast in the play who then went on to direct their own Pratchett plays afterwards. And, you know, that it became a little kind of community of people doing so, which is which is really wonderful. Yeah, um, amazing. And I think I think that was it was I think really maybe again that spirit of rebellion because you know there's a very set canon of what the Oxford theatre scene considers important work to produce. Right. And it was very fun for me to to be like, oh, we could do Pratchett and have a good time. Yeah, and and then I also directed the the Oxford Review, which is kind of the equivalent of like the Cambridge Footlights, sure. right? So it's a sketch comedy group. And that was really, really interesting because, you know, comedians, my goodness, what an interesting genre of human being. Some of my very good friends are comedians. <laughs> but I think, you know, really, really interesting when you think about things like timing, devising, working with people and personalities and, and also the, the practicalities of like putting on a show, which I do think actually have made a, a kind of difference in my my career as well, right? Because right, yeah. so much of even narrative design for games is also understanding 
the limitations and the resources kind of available to you in the way that if you're a theatre director, you might not need to learn how to rig a lighting rig yourself, but you certainly need to understand what's possible in this theatre, in this space with your resources, you know, and some idea of budget also kind of plays into uh, into being. So, yeah. Yeah. Ah, that's so interesting. Right. We better come to your third game, unfortunately, because I'd like to keep talking lots about this. But yeah, let's come to your third game, which is definitely an interesting one. So tell us tell us about this one. So I picked Pern Marsh. Since it was not at all unusual for dragon riders to be found poring over the volumes in the extensive Ivers archives, Flesson was not surprised to see a girl wearing the shoulder knots of a green rider deeply engrossed in study. What did strike him as odd was that anyone at all was here in the main archive reading room during turnover. Tonight, the planet, North and South continents, would officially celebrate the beginning of the 32nd turn of the present and, hopefully, final pass of Threadfall. Even through the thick walls of the building, he could hear drums and occasionally the sound of brass instruments from Landing's Gather Square. In between the N64 days and... You know, getting a, the next console I got was like uh, the Xbox 360, actually, which I bought to play uh, Grand Theft Auto because GTA, the original top down, is one of my favorite games of all time. And then I hadn't played any of the others. Um, yeah, but so that's quite a long span of time. And in the middle, I got access to the Internet in Saudi Arabia and I must have been around 12. And so I was like deeply involved in stuff like forum role playing and BBS boards, and back in the day, like Yahoo groups. I was a huge part of a lot of uh, play-by-email games, which were, you know, exactly what they sound like, right? A group of people get together, and then you you role-play back and forth over email. And, like, back in the day, people would do that with letters, right? Right. These are all, I guess, fandom practices in some senses. Yeah. So the pan one was because I, at age 12 was a huge fan of Anne McCaffrey's utterly ridiculous Dragon Riders of Pan right. series, which is like a, a series of sci fantasy novels, which usually feature like very spunky heroines who ride dragons. Right. And there's a like weird cast system of dragons that go from like gold, which are always ridden by women. And those are the leaders of the ware, which is the, the ware is like the, the, the dragon's home. Um, and then there's the bronze dragons that are usually like the quarterbacks, you know, and like the it's like the the men who like have sex with the the where women. Oh my gosh, the, the sexual politics of it is fascinating. And then you know there's there's various other dragons. But it's written for twelve year olds. Well, I read them when I was twelve. Let's oh, put it so. that way. <laughs> um, but you have a like a mind bond with your dragon, right? And when they hatch, you know, there's a whole bunch of candidates, and then. Basically, they have an affinity, so it's like this soul bond that they they kind of have with you, which you can imagine to a like a twelve year old. And then they then there's also like this this kind of um, environmental danger called threat, which is this this very poisonous, corrosive substance that falls from the sky because this is all set on this failed terraforming project, right? Um, Got it. You know, far in humanity's future, and this thread can can only be destroyed through dragon fire. 
And so you're basically a bunch of like extreme firefighters, <laughs> you know. So there's yes. a kind of like military band of brothers aspect to all of it. Right. It's a lot going on. Yeah, yeah. As well as a lot of like deep sociocultural politics between the wares and then the halls that have crafts. You know, so there's there's a, a deep richness there to explore. Yeah. And there's a lot of like structures that are quite video gamey in a sense, right? So if you think about, oh, there's a whole like, like a one of the dragons has laid a clutch of ten eggs, and then these ten eggs need a bunch of thirty candidates, and then they'll pick amongst them. Right. And then you have a dragon, and then you advance up the hierarchy of this ware until perhaps you lead it, or you know, so um, all of that, I think, really lends itself to role-playing. I just kind of picked Panmarsh. I don't think it was actually really the one that I played the most, but it's the biggest one. Right, and right, right. loads of them are just lost to time now, to be honest. What's really interesting about these is that your your status in the fictional world is also based on, one, how active you are in the role-playing, but also be your proficiency with like the soft code of the moshes. So quite a few of them also allowed you to create rooms and dungeons and interactable objects and things like that. So kind of as there's a sort of like fictional hierarchy inside of the game that also mirrors the admin, because these are all volunteer projects. It was those days of the internet, which, you know, in some ways I still very much yearn for, you know, before corporations really got their stranglehold in and, and turned everything into a mall. Yeah. And um, so, you know, you had these like grand, like collaborative storytelling projects that people spent hours and hours on and felt deeply invested in. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, were not for profit. They were just for like the sheer joy of the thing. And you made real friends on in a lot of these spaces as well, you know. So I guess maybe that also shapes some of my attitude towards video games in that to me um, um, a mud is a video game right right yeah as yeah. well and and what it is is a space for collaborative storytelling um and expression and responsiveness and humanness rather than just you know hit hit your marks and get <laughs> fetch this object and do this and do that yeah like in a way even though they look so simple being text things this just can be much more complex and layered because of the sure. humanity involved i guess and interrelationships right yeah right like so i mean i think there's a there's a deep link here between this and parser games which we are going to end up talking about <laughs> because one of my <laughs> other games is a parser game but with the parser game it's almost like it's almost like a, a moo or a mud with the human interaction taken out of it. So <laughs> I think part of the pleasure of this is, is kind of being in this shared, in this shared fantasy world, but, you know, talk kind of talking to each other and the human beings are capable of just so much more surprising responsiveness than you can possibly really program it. Yeah, right? yeah. Even though we're all trying to do that. Right. We should come to your, your, back to your story. So you, yeah, after you graduate from Oxford, you join the BBC for a bit. How do you get from uh -huh. there to working on 80 Days, this wonderful, wonderful game sort of based on, on the Jules Verne novel? Yeah. So I, I actually worked, initially I worked in sort of audiences, but with a very much a, a view towards like social media, which was just happening at that time. So I was kind of embedded in television teams from digital, which, you know, didn't make me very popular, shall we say. You know, and, and I was often the youngest member of the team with the least experience. 
but I did understand the internet and I knew that you didn't have to pay for Twitter. <laughs> and, you know, and which is a thing I, I did have to explain to a quite well-known TV producer. Um, but at that point, I really thought, gosh, shall I just say a million pounds? <laughs> I think actually a huge part of my job was telling TV folks that they didn't need a Twitter account. You know, unfortunately, like, as, as you can tell with how the world has gone, I failed in that task. <laughs> You were the one advising Gary Lineker not to do it. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I think it's totally fine to have like your personal accounts when I'm talking about like the TV show. Account, okay, right? right. Have I got news for you, Twitter type thing and all of that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and some of them really do. And that's great. But I think it was at that time where people didn't realize that it was quite a difficult task. And, and if you started one, then there was a, an expectation of regularity and necessity to maintain community. And what kind of content do you, like, what is the purpose of doing this? Uh, or do you just want a Twitter account because it just seems like the thing to do? Right, right, right. So it was always a little bit of that, like, technology, storytelling kind of space. And then I ended up working in games at the BBC. So I was commissioning games there, uh, which, again, involved a lot of, telling TV teams that they, they shouldn't make that game, um, you know. Right, yeah, yeah. Or that they should make a game, you know, and, and, and that games weren't just for nerds anymore, which, you know, just seems so ancient now. This must have been, you know, maybe like 2009 or so. So it's not that long ago, but, you know, those are the conversations I was having. And I think, you know, now the, the, the sort of cultural relevance and value of the game is kind of indisputable for better or worse. Yes, Basically, I got made redundant uh, by the BBC and then had to move home to my parents. Um, I'd always wanted to to make a game. And at that time, you know, there was just this profusion of, of free tools that didn't require deep programming knowledge. So, you know, Twine was around, RenP, things like that. But um, fail better games who make Fall in London, but also Some of the Sea and Some of the Skies, had just opened up their internal platform called Story Nexus, and they were running a competition to make a, a game in their platform. And the, you know, and anyone who made a game would get their work seen by Mike Laidlaw, who's the creative director of Dragon Age of Bioware, <laughs> Susan Arendt, who's like a, a brilliant thinker um, and critic, and and Jonas Kratzis, and you know. Uh, as someone who wasn't working in games, I was like, oh, well, these are three really, you know, worst case scenario, I'll make something. And these three people will give me some feedback on what I've made. Um, and so I made Samsara, which is a game about dreamwalking in 18th century Bengal, just at the moment where the British East India Company becomes the British Raj and the Battle of Plassey happens. And you play this kind of dreamwalker who's around the the, the Nawab's sort of glittering court by day and dipping into like the dreams of all of the, the courtiers at night. And yeah, and I won, I won the con the competition, which was re really wonderful. But the most, I think, important thing that came out of that was that John Ingold played Samsara and sent me this wonderful email uh, about uh, some of the sort of design choices and the mechanical choices that I'd made. And then I think a few months later, it was like, so... Uh, we're planning to make this this little game that will require a lot of historical research. And I hate doing historical research, but you're clearly quite good at it. <laughs> um, would you like to come and do a writing test? Yeah, and then and then I had it was, you know, an adaptation of Around the World in 80 Days, which is a book that I really love, but also have like a deep sort of critique of, right? Because a huge part of the this book is set in India. 
very amusingly, most of the other countries and places that Vern describes in the book are deeply well-researched and accurate, whereas in India, he's never been to India and just makes things oh, up right. whole cloth. So it's this deep kind of oriental fantasy. Got it. Even though Vern himself, you know, was quite an anti-colonialist for his time. And I think, you know, the, the idea of, I think the project they gave me is essentially like, how would we remake Around the World in 80 Days in a way that's exciting for a modern audience and that keeps to kind of Vern's ethos and ideas, but actually, you know, doesn't stick to it to, you know, doesn't fall into the authenticity trap and isn't nostalgic, but really reinvents things. And one of the ways in which we did it was inventing a whole bunch of steampunk ways of travel, because in 80 Days, the central premise of it is that there's only one the only way you can get around the world in 80 days is because there's a railroad that goes through India. And we wanted to have countless ways to get around the world in yes. 80 days. And also a steam train in 1872 when Vern wrote it was a very exciting, you know, thrilling idea to present to readers. Whereas now it's like, oh, steam train, you know. <laughs> so we wanted to create a whole bunch of fantastical objects and and and, and ways of travel, but also just, just, just tweak it so that it's no longer the narrative of like two white men striding the bounds of empire and what is a story in which so Alda, who is the, the the woman that fog falls in love with yes. in the in the novel she's kind of a metaphor for for india in the british consciousness in that she's she is so happy to be conquered by she's in love with britishness whiteness fog um you know and is grateful for this rescue and so in my and and so i think that was like my little way into writing it which is how do we write a game in which like Alda has agency and and purpose and and has her own story that isn't just background uh, or filler. Yeah, yeah. To to Fox. Oh my gosh, we could do a whole hour on eighty days easily. <laughs> I got so much I want to ask you, but we better stick to the premise. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, you brought the premise, so we should be good. Right. Let's come to your fourth game then. Tell us about this one. A, uh, a well a. a Narrative game by a very fine writer like yourself of narrative games. Yeah. This game is Savoir Faire by Emily Short. You'd hoped to find the Count at home. Your original plan was to ask him for an advance on the money you expect to earn on your estate in a month or two. But according to the local population, the Count hasn't been home in months, and Marie, who was in residence until recently, has vanished as well. No one around the big house now, says one of the peasant women tersely. Even turned off the cook, they did. But you need the money at once. If you return to Paris without it, your creditors are unlikely to be forgiving. So you walked over the fields anyway, and got in through the gap in the kitchen garden wall. You will just have to find what you can. If you're not familiar with Emily Short and you love words and puzzles and just, you know, I mean, just extraordinary prose. I know I've already said words, but really, she just can really turn a sentence. You know, and I think that's partly why I really love her work, because, you know, as someone who is a writer coming into games, even though, you know, I'm interested in narrative design, she, she really marries, you know, systemic design and innovation with like a real 
literary kind of pleasure and and an interest. And so Savoir Faire is, is kind of this, it's a parser game. So I don't know whether you want to describe what a parser is. So, okay, so this uses a particular type of software, right, in which you enter commands. Is that right? Yeah, 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 exactly. So it's like text-based, but you, you kind of, you have a limited number of verbs to use. So it's like, you know, look here yep. or go there. Or in, in this game, we also have the commands which are link and remember. And link is one of the kind of bases of this game's central mechanic. So it's kind of set in this sort of alternate 18th century Paris that mixes a little bit of like clockwork, automata, steampunk with magic. A very Emily Short, if you're familiar with her work, a very, really short thing. It's very, like, yeah. rococo and joyful. Even though, you know, I know I, I have written 80 Days, which is Victoriana. It's one of the, it's a really done kind of period. And I think so much more interesting to do this, like, 18th century Parisian thing. And you play this, um, this kind of down-on-your-luck nobleman called Pierre. And you go back to your family home, but I think because you're out of money as far as I recall, and, you're, and you, you really need a loan. But then your house is mysteriously abandoned. And it's a real like take on a very like classic parser type game, which is like uh, wandering around um, a location and looting it. Yeah. Except here, there's, there's kind of two things going on. One of which is you are a practitioner of a very esoteric form of magic called lavery d'arachne, which is all about linking things, which if you know anything about passes, it's very interesting because like parser games sort of describe objects and you can interact with them. And in this, you're asking these objects to interact with these. So they can create really sometimes quite useful effects to solve puzzles. And this is a very puzzle-driven game. Mm. But sometimes just very playful, silly effects. So for instance, say um, link a cuckoo clock and a snuff box that you can't open. Yeah. And nothing seems to happen initially. But if you wait for long enough, the snuff box then opens and then closes. <laughs> and then you go away for a bit and then you come back and then the snuff box opens basically on the hour. Like right. a cool clock yes. would open and close. The snuff box can open and close. Um, and so you can only link certain types of objects. They need to be similar in some sense. But there's a sort of playful joy to just linking things and seeing what happens, whether it solves a puzzle or not. Yeah. And the other aspect of this is that Pierre is also a big time gourmand who is like incredibly hungry, like and and his <laughs> hunger like really presses upon you. But he will refuse to just eat any old thing because you know he's a bit of a French aristocrat. So you can find like a loaf of bread, but Pierre will be like. Yeah, but I can't just eat this bread. I need to find some beautiful butter and perhaps some strawberries. You know, so so you're kind of driven through the exploration of this house by the protagonist's caprice rather than by a desire to survive. Because, you know, he's not going to die of hunger. He has bread, but he he simply can't. Like, how could you possibly ask? So he's going to lower himself to just eat the bread, right? Yeah, exactly. And then and as you're exploring this house and uncovering things, you also, you can you can remember when you encounter an object. So you also sort of fill in this backstory of this house. And I think you can see in this a little maybe precursor to like even Gone Home or, you know, various kind of games like that. One of the things Emily is really known for is how she does just more than is kind of required. And I think for me personally, I think you could see, say, Baldur's Gate, which everyone is playing at the moment. And it has that very similar 
systemic, like anything can be combined with anything else. You can do this and this and this. And the systems are designed to produce useful effects, but also funny effects, but also disastrous effects. But it's all about that kind of systemic linkage. And I, I really do think you can kind of trace some of that back to Parser work and Emily's work and, and, and you know, all of these. And, and I think for me, that's always been really, really fascinating to me because I think we often end up talking about narrative in video games just so defining video games in this narrow way whereas actually i would say you know there's such interesting narrative work being done in these marginal and hybrid spaces yes in twine in parser in text adventures in all of these and a lot of um game designers actually that you would know uh, who are making you know bigger games that you would know are actually, I think, drawing deep inspiration yeah. from that. I mean, you know, we all know that like indie functions as a well of inspiration for AAA. Um, yes. You know, which, you know, I think also perhaps speaks to why we might want to fund it and support it and nourish it Very much and so. sustain it. Yes. On, on, on that note, I suppose, I'd be interested to see what it was like for you going... You work on 80 Days, which is a significant piece of work, not only in terms of the amount of writing, but also you know the impact it has. And then you also work on Sunless Seas, which is one of my favourite games as well. And some other, you know, very well regarded, but essentially small scale projects in some uh-huh. ways. And then you go from that to working on Sony's uh, Horizon, which is the very much at the other end of that scale. Yeah. What, what was that like? How did you... How did you find that adjustment? Was it did it feel like it was the same thing, or was it completely different? Mm, no, I think it felt it felt very it felt very different to me. You know, I had a I had a great experience working on it, particularly because of Ben Schroeder, Good. who is my primary contact on the team and is just a like a wonderful human being as well as narrative designer and, and, and kind of thinker. The scale was really confronting, so I came on board the project. I think a year and a half before launch, I was only a contractor and I only worked on it for about six or eight months. Yeah. But I came on a year and a half before launch, which to me, from my indie timescales, I thought, oh my God, okay, so there's plenty of time, only to discover that they'd been working on it for three years already. And pretty much everything, you know, it was was set in, a lot of things were set in stone. Right. Because... I think that realization of, oh my gosh, it's a huge ship of like 500 people have been working on this thing for three years already. And if you want to course correct, it's much, it's nearly impossible. Yes. Whereas one of the pleasures of indie is that you can add like very new things and reshape it. You know, you can figure out what the game is and then go almost go back to the beginning and kind of reshape all of your work. You know, in in these days, we, we added... Um, the day, the the kind of um, day night system, mm-hmm. pretty much like five months before the end, and like wrote a whole bunch of content for that, and 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 the game is better for it. But the, those kinds of adjustments are much harder in the in the kind of AAA space. It was also my first time writing box, right? Which is you know quite unusual for a writer, narrative designer in the industry. Usually, you begin by doing so. Yeah. So just explain what those are to people who might not know. So box are repeatable lines that fire off whenever something in the game happens so like if you see a waterfall or if you need to reload your gun there's usually like a bank of like maybe 10 or 20 lines that fires off to respond to something that the player has done 
And the really interesting thing about Barks is that the key is to write lines that are interesting, but not memorable. Right. <laughs> because they'll be seen and heard over and over again. And so if you write something that's too memorable, the player will remember hearing that before. Right. And then it will become a running joke. Like I took an arrow to the knee or, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or it becomes irritating, I guess, because you just yeah. keep noticing it, right? Exactly, right? Yeah. So, so it's quite funny because, you know, I think previously the purpose of every sentence I wrote was to be as succinct and as like memorable as possible. Ideally, you would love it if a player remembered a line that you'd written, whereas here that was not the goal, right? Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, so... Yeah, to like go from reinterpreting Jules Verne novels to like trying to write forgettable <laughs> lines about how you need to reload your gun. That's uh, that's quite different, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I actually didn't have to do a lot of like gun reloading because well, Aloy doesn't have a gun, which is which is nice. But um, sure, yeah. But I did, you know. So it, it was quite nice. They, they did, you know. So it was. Uh, I wrote a lot of like the texture for the initial area that you're in, like the place that Aloy comes from. So things like responding to outfits or responding to someone's cultural background right, and, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. stuff like that, which, which is, but I did end up writing, writing a few um, reloading things. Which, <laughs> uh, that was interesting. But um, I think I got a really great piece of advice, I think from, from Ben Schroeder. And what he said was, we do want lines that respond to, say, beautiful things that you're seeing in the world. Like, oh, the first time Ayla encounters running water. Please. We want a line for that, or we want 10 lines for that. But we should really never in a bark say, oh my God, that's so beautiful. Right. Because ideally, you and you're working, so this is also the difference between working in a completely textual medium, where it's my description that is creating this world in a player's imagination. Whereas here, there's an entire graphics animation team that is spending quite a lot of money making the waterfall look beautiful yeah. and the last thing you need is to override the yeah. pudding and gild the lily and say my god this is beautiful that's a thought that you want the player to have internally and sometimes when a protagonist says that it can almost make it less powerful yeah right right describing the waterfall as if <laughs> as if you as if you can't, as if see, you can't it. see it yeah exactly amazing yeah Right, Megno, we better come to your fifth and your final game, sadly. Yeah, tell us about this from, from, from 2012. My final game is maybe the most like mainstream, but I think really fits probably with, um, with the, pleasures, <laughs> the, the, the pleasures that I clearly enjoy in a game. It's Persona 4 Golden. which I think really brings together simulation and role-playing. 
in this in this deep way. I think it's one of the most stylish um, kind of games out there. Also, this was this is a game that I played on the PS Vita. I think it was a return to. I think maybe that was my first handheld console because I never really did a Game Boy. Right. I never got obsessed with my Game Boy back in the day. You know, or maybe I would borrow them from friends. So I, I don't think I, I owned one myself. And so I think, yeah, the the handheld console, which I now love, and then the Switch then also became a beloved console of mine. And I do love my Steam Deck now. Oh, I'm playing Baldur's Gate 3 on the Steam Deck, nice. which is a little fiddly, but wonderful. The Persona games are are deeply, I think, anime-influenced, very sort of psychological stories, usually about a bunch of disaffected teenagers who find out that the world of adults is full of lies and hypocrisy yes, and have to, to band together to sort out a problem. And Persona 4 Golden is particularly about the protagonist like moves to this little rural Japanese town then here's this rumor going around and if you've ever lived in a in a small town or know anyone that has you know like urban myths and rumors that pass through school and through t- teenage groups are a real thing yes yeah and and the rumor is that if you watch this particular channel tune into this particular tv channel at night you will see the face of your soulmate but then they find out that then people are kids are being mysteriously murdered and so it's this kind of murder mystery story that you, the protagonist, solve alongside a, a kind of team of, of folks that you kind of assemble around you. And it's really split into many different types of gameplay. You know, there's there's a kind of like daytime simulation element where you're like picking what to do and like you're doing your little day job or and earning some money hey. or like learning things at school and like encountering people. And then at night you go into this collective unconscious like tv landscape where you essentially fight shadows which are like manifestations of like the darkness of the human psyche yes with your own sort of psychic manifestations and you play these like turn-based battles yes you're sort of fighting personifications of your own or other people's inner demons right in the sense of like by which I mean, like things like self-doubt or like mm-hmm. you know low self-esteem or things like that. It's like very, it's it's even though it's like very fantastical, it's sort of rooted in, yeah. I guess pop psychology or whatever, right? Yeah, you know, it's very, it's very, it's like it's very psychological and metaphorical. But I think in this very, in this way that I think Japan does in a much more interesting way than a lot of Western games, which you know the trauma plot, you know, which we talk about. And how basically every game now is about trauma. I mean, I say that even though Thirsty Suitors is also about trauma, right? But I think there's there's kinds of ways to to kind of approach it, and it has this very, I think, a really like playful, irreverent approach to to all of this, which I think is 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 really nice, and it is very, it feels very teenage actually. It does, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not over earnest yeah. in any way, is it? Which it really could be quite easily, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. I think in different hands, it could be a, it could be this very kind of earnest game, but yeah, um, it's really not because I, and I do think it really draws from that 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 the best parts of anime, which also like thirsty suitors, uh, you know, draws from as well, which it, which are that ability to to intermingle like deep seriousness and moments of real emotion with things that are very like over the top and exaggerated and silliness and absurdity, which I, I don't know in some ways to me feels so much more interesting and, and, and weirdly like realistic yeah uh, than like the kitchen sink drama yeah approach to it 
Wonderful, wonderful choice. People are going to be pleased with that, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, after I've, after I've tried to get you to play like party games and mushes, uh, thank goodness, here's something. Yeah, I, I really realized that actually like none of the games I picked are console games and like the closest I really came was, uh, was, was Persona yeah. Full Golden. That's but. a game you can buy on eBay, at least, so... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You can play. You can play Savoir Faire online. Oh, you can. Yeah, no, of course. Right. Let's um, let's go through your console then. So we've got theme park slash theme hospital, uh, Princess Maker Three, Pern Mush, Savoir Faire, and Persona Four Golden. That's brilliant, isn't it? Cool. <laughs> 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 I mean, perhaps it explains quite a lot about like my career interests. Yeah, and, and yeah, we definitely got a good sense of who you are now. <laughs> um, right, we need a name for this console to market it to the world. Uh, make now, what's? Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh goodness, I didn't know that that was going to happen, and then like utterly, mm, utterly failed. All right. Um, yeah, the pressure's hmm. on now. So yeah. What would you, what, would you, what would you like to call it? I mean, I have to admit, I love like the, I like, I love it, like, like the Dreamcast. What a great. Such a good name. Yeah, yeah. Name, right? Oh, <laughs> this is going to be, such a, you're going to have to cut this down in the final thing while I, oh man, oh. No, I'm going to, I'm going to slow it down. <laughs> <laughs> just every single sort of increasingly anxious breath just, just kind of plays out. Um. I mean, you could call it the Dreamcast too, I suppose. I mean, you know, what we didn't talk about were Kyrosoft games. Oh, right, yeah. Which I do love, like Game Dev Story. Gosh, yeah, I love that. You know, and you got to name all of these consoles. You did, yeah. You have to, yeah, in that game, you have to name every game, don't you, that you make and... You have to name every game. Yeah. I used to, I used to name my console the Squakes, actually. Okay. Um, on on it, so perhaps we'll just go with that. Like, and and you know, so that's become like a real thing in my mind. Every Kairos, every time I play Game Dev Story, yeah, my favorite console is a Squakes. Squakes. Wait, so how's that spelled? Oh, I think it was like a, a the game that I was making was obviously a Square Enix game. I see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was like, and then it's on a Squakes, which is sort of like a GameCube. But like a GameCube that only plays Square Enix games. Got it. Got it. I'm with you yeah, now. It makes sense. It makes. <laughs> it sense. does make sense. Um, like S Q U E N S. Right. Halo. That is brilliant. Yeah. Well, listen, <laughs> you have been so generous with your time, so I really appreciate it. I've got one one last uh, question, if if that's all right. So, of course. Yeah, we. I mean, it's very clear that you're interested in you know, the kinds of story in games that don't rely on violence as the only route to meaningful change or or like as well, we haven't really talked about this, but also the expansion of territory, which is such a mm. such a core mechanic yes. in so many games. Or extraction of resources. Right, right, right. Know? Yeah. What's the best candidate for a replacement in terms of like a mechanic that could be explored by like loads of loads of studios at loads of different scales that could I suppose you could swap in for one of those two perhaps so I think my answer is going to be kind of annoying which is I think the entire point of decolonial and anti-capitalist thinking is to explode the idea of the singular narrative here we go into kind of multiplicity <laughs> you know and and I think my answer really would be why do we need to replace it with one? I think the answer is an infinite possibility, which is, I think, so much more exciting <laughs> as a designer. Brilliant. Spoken like a true mm. Oxford graduate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
no, we came. We came back to that because you needed me to cringe myself to death at the end of this interview. <laughs> I see. I see, Simon. Oh, brilliant. This has been great. Thank you so much. Um, I'm so glad. I'm so glad we got to do no, it. So my pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for all your work as well, which we all appreciate and can't wait to can't wait to play Thirsty Suitors and whatever is next. Thanks so much, Simon. Thank you so much to my guest, Meghna. That was fantastic, wasn't it? What a brilliant chat. Uh, what a brilliant guest Meghna was. Loved hearing all of her thoughts on her her games, which I think really gives us a good sense of who she is, where she's come from, and perhaps where she is headed as well. Uh, if you are interested in Meghna's work, which of course you should be after listening to that, then go back and play 80 Days. You should you should absolutely have played 80 Days if you haven't done by now. It's been mentioned before on the podcast a couple of times, and uh, now we've had the writer of that game on here. Um, as well, you should certainly play Sunless Seas and Sunless Skies, which are both two fantastic games. Uh, Meghna also wrote... Um, some of the script for last year's uh, Sabal, um, the game set in the desert that was one of the sort of indie hits of last year as well. So um, she, yeah, she has had a very illustrious career and uh, no misfires as yet, I would say. And certainly looks like uh, the game that is coming out later this week, her latest um, uh, project that she is participated in it thirsty suitors by all accounts is going to be fantastic as well so yes that is out on november the 2nd 2023 that is this thursday if you are listening to the podcast hot off the internet um the game is available it's, it's published by annapurna interactive annapurna is uh, just one of the finest publishers of video games working in the world at the moment of course annapurna Perna started out as a as a film studio and um, production house and still makes films and funds them and uh, uh, works as a studio but has the interactive wing of what it does and is has published really some of the best games of the last few years you may remember Ronan Farrow in his in his uh, episode talking about how much he loves Annapurna I think he described himself as an Annapurna ho <laughs> but uh, yeah Annapurna games are fantastic they are publishing Thirsty Suitors it is coming out on Microsoft Windows PC on the Nintendo Switch on the Playstations and on the Xboxes so you've probably got one or more of those, so lots of different ways to play the game. Developed by Outer Loop Games, uh, a fine team there. And uh, yeah, check it out when it lands this week. You may have noticed that two of the games that Meghna picked there have no soundtrack. So once again, I roped in my dear friend Ed Hawkins, the opera singer, to lend me his incredible deep gravelly voice to read out some of the lines of script from that the first one of those from from pern mush i took that text from the original novel so i don't know if that actually that text actually featured in the the mush itself there's no way to play it anymore as far as i can tell i couldn't find any youtube videos of it um, but megna did say that it was it was based on the novel so i figured well you know that she's a bit of a novel for that. Emily Short's game Savoir Faire is available. 
to to play on the internet and uh, so we were able to take some of the text from that that's in fact the introduction as you can tell where it's setting up why you're heading off to this um to this abandoned house um wonderful really really enjoyed ed's uh, ed's um, peasant villager voice as well if you if you are looking for a voice actor for your game that you're making at the moment i know lots of you are making games please do get in contact with ed i'm sure he'd be delighted to help i'd love to see him uh, in a game um he should be in one um, shouldn't he uh, <laughs> so yeah he is you can find out more about ed and contact him at his website edwardhawkinsbase.com uh, he's also he's also on tour at the moment. I think at the or he's performing at the Hackney Empire, one of his operas. I don't know what the crossover is between my perfect console listeners and opera fans, but uh, but if that's you, then oh my gosh, you should you should get along to Hackney Empire and see what he's up to. You can see more about his his dates and what he's doing at his website as well. Right, I thought uh, I thought do a few letters, read out a few emails from you lot. That'd be a nice thing to do. So we've got a lovely email here from George Batchelor. Hello, Simon. George writes, I just wanted to extend a quick thank you for creating the podcast. I make games on my own most of the time, which takes forever and can be quite tedious and isolating. But hearing all your wonderful guests talk so eloquently and enthusiastically about their experiences with games has been a lovely warm reminder to keep going. Thank you, George. What a lovely email. What a lovely message. We all want you to keep going. Keep going with your game. Absolutely. Get it finished uh, and tell us about it when it's out. And I will give it a little plug on here. So thanks, George. Um, Got a message here from Zerk. That's X-U-R-C. He, she, they doesn't give a name, but it is Zerk. And they write, hello there. I'd like to suggest Lena Rain as a future guest of the podcast. She is a composer best known for her work on Celeste, Minecraft and Guild Wars 2. Uh, She's also been an avid gamer since childhood. Yes, Lena has been suggested as a guest a few times now. I have, I think I've sent an email trying to track her down. I will do so again. That gives me a new uh, incentive to go and track down uh, Lena. Lena, I will try to do that. Um, ASAP. Message here from Reese Haskell. Hi Simon, hope you're well. Wanted to say, send a message to say how much I've been enjoying the podcast and to thank you for all the hard work that must go into it. Thanks so much, Reese. Listening over the last few months has inspired me to craft my own perfect console. Not sure if you ever plan to collate or discuss fan submissions, but I thought I would share it with you anyway. Well, yeah, why not? Let's do it today, eh, Reese? So Reese is uh, on his... Uh, on his um, blog has written up a, a lovely post all about the podcast and has picked out his five games they are sonic the hedgehog from 1991 goldeneye from 1997 hoping to have a member of the goldeneye team on here quite soon monster hunter freedom 2 from 2007 dark souls from 2011 a popular choice of course and lastly super hexagon from uh, 2012 Super Hexagon, for anyone who doesn't know or remember, was a just fantastic little indie rhythm video game uh, in which I think it was originally on iPhone, um, came out probably about a decade ago and maybe for Windows and uh, other other PC systems. But yes, it was just a really hectic little music based um, game in which you have to dodge <laughs> dodge your way through a, a tunnel maze. Gosh, you wouldn't think that I have in my life described video games for for money before but anyway (laughs) 
Uh, it is created by Terry Kavanagh. Uh, Terry is oh, just a wonderful designer, lovely person. I'm going to I'm going to try and get him on here. That's a great reminder. So thank you, Reese, for that. Yeah, Reese also writes that uh, he gives a name to his his console or his website. Isn't that lovely? He calls it the Endeavor because I like the sound of the word, but I also think it speaks to the challenge contained within my list of games. Oh, and I'd make the V of Endeavor a different colour to emphasise that it contains five games. Very good, very thoughtful there, Reese. More thoughtful than some of our guests, I venture to say. So, um, yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, he does. He does mention uh, that perhaps there'll be a way for people to share their games. Yes, we are working on that. Some of the lovely My Perfect Console supporters, Patreon supporters, have been building a visualization for the database, and I think there's going to be possibilities for listeners of the show to upload and share their own consoles in the future. I will update you on that as and when, uh, as and when it develops. You can find out more about that project and, of course, support the podcast in lots of different ways by heading to patreon.com forward slash myperfectconsole. Become a supporter, get benefits and, uh, yeah, join the community as well. It would be lovely to have you along for the ride. Next week, we've got Naomi Alderman, a really wonderful guest. Uh, Naomi, you may know, is the author. She's a novelist and is the author of the smash hit bestseller called The Power, um, which was made into an, uh, a prestige TV show that I think is on Amazon Prime, debuted earlier this year, I think. I had such a great chat to Naomi. She very knowledgeable person about games. She used to write about them for The Observer alongside and alongside all of her novels. And she's a very accomplished person and also one of the writers on the, the exceedingly popular app Run Zombies Run, which is a sort of narrative-based fitness game that has just took over the world and never really let go. So, yeah, lots to talk to Naomi about. So, yeah, join us again next week. I'll be talking to Naomi. We'll, we'll hear her five games and at the end of it have one more perfect console. Till then, goodbye. <laughs>